And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. If you read your Bible with a sensitive heart, uh, you're often going to be just overwhelmed with the difficulty of many of its commands. Uh, in, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, You are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Huh, that's pretty tall order, isn't it? In Luke 6, Luke 6, he says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. Again, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty lofty thing. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. Paul in the New Testament says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Again, very tall orders. And the list could go on and on and on. How can we possibly obey these seemingly impossible commands of Scripture? Well, the disciples, they really felt overwhelmed by Jesus' teaching in what we looked at last week, verses 1 through 4. He told them to be on guard so as to not cause any young believers to stumble. Okay, so don't cause them to stumble. And he said, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if they ask for forgiveness or if they repent, then you grant them forgiveness no matter how many times that cycle repeats. Again, tall order stuff. The disciples instantly recognize that these are tough demands. To walk, to walk uprightly so as to not to cause a new believer to stumble and to forgive someone who has wronged us, those are not automatic behaviors. Matter of fact, they kind of go against <laughs> what is automatically in us. Forgiveness especially is tough because it often involves our feelings. So the disciples respond by asking the Lord to increase their faith. That's in verse 5. Now, it was an honest request, uh, and it had the right motives behind it. They saw that if they wanted to fulfill these demands, they would have to have God's strength, God's enablement to do it. They could not do it on their own power. But Jesus' answer, it indicates that more faith is really not the issue. Faith is not measured by its quantity, but by its presence. Let me say that again. Faith is not measured by its quantity, but by its presence. A mustard, he talks about a mustard seed. You know how big a mustard seed is? It is tiny. It is tiny, tiny. A mustard seed-sized faith will accomplish impossible things. The real need, Jesus says, is for us to be more obedient and humble. We should view ourselves as God's slaves who owe Him simple and unquestioning obedience. And when we've done all that He requires, we shouldn't get puffed up with pride in, in our great obe obedience, but we should simply say we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. So, when we encounter those difficult commands in Scripture, we should not focus on more faith. That's not the issue. But we need to focus more on obedience and humility. Well, let's just take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, there's not a person in here this morning that in some way or another is not going to be touched by these words. These are difficult things coming from the mouth of Jesus. So we ask that you would speak to our hearts. Pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand this truth, Father. 
And God, that you would speak specifically into each of our hearts regarding our obedience and regarding our humility. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in taking this approach to this text, I, I, I differ with several men of God that I respect. Now, these men treat the apostles' request to the Lord, increase our faith, as a positive kind of role model, as something that we should follow. Now, there's no question that the Bible encourages us to be strong in faith, growing in our faith to the point that we implicitly trust God and His promises. I hope that nothing I say today discourages anyone from growing in their faith, without which it is impossible to please God. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Paul tells us that everything we do must stem, must come from faith, or it's a sin. Well, I would agree with these men that, that the prayer for more faith is one that we should often bring before God. But in this context, it seems that Jesus is offering really a gentle correction to the disciples' request, not a commendation of it. He's saying, don't wait around for, for increased faith. Just a small amount of genuine faith can accomplish what is humanly impossible. Rather, he says, focus on your duty to obey God. And when you have obeyed, don't start thinking that you're something really special. Keep in mind at all times that you are just an unworthy slave. Those are Jesus' words. An unworthy slave who has done what was required of him. So first, when you encounter those difficult commands of Scripture, your focus should be not on more faith. Now, at first, this, this may sound like heresy. Aren't Christians supposed to be people of faith? From cover to cover, uh, the Bible rebukes unbelief and it encourages faith. So why did Jesus answer this way? Why did he answer as he did? Well, the idea of more faith exalts man, not God. Just think about it. Has anybody ever come up to you and said, well, I, 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 I wish I could believe in, in Jesus as you do. I just don't have as much faith as you have. You kind of clear your throat and you say, oh, uh, well, shucks, it's nothing really. Who gets the glory there? You do. Not the God you serve. You're the one with such great faith. The focus is on you. Or have you ever heard of a, a great Christian leader referred to as a man of great faith? Again, who gets the glory? The man of great faith gets the glory. The rest of us sigh and say, wow, I wish I could have such faith. But that's the wrong emphasis. There is a sense in which there is no such thing as great faith. There is either, it's either faith or no faith. You either have it or you don't. Now, I realize that on two occasions, Jesus commended people for their great faith. Do you remember the centurion? And the Syrophoenician woman, he, he, both of them, he said, wow, your, your faith is great. And we also know that, that Jesus often chastised his disciples for their what? Little faith. But in each case, he was commending a person who took God at his word, and he was chastising those men who did not believe uh, God concerning the matter at hand. So the matter is not so much great faith in God, but faith in a great God. The smallest amount of faith links us to Christ. Christ is mighty. For example, suppose I told you that uh, I demonstrated great faith by driving my car over the Golden, great uh, Golden Gate Bridge. Now that's a big, high bridge. 
And you would say to me, that doesn't take great faith because it's a solid bridge and it's carried the weight of millions and millions of cars and trucks over the years. Now, to be sure, it takes some faith to drive over the bridge because you're really committing your life to the ability of that bridge to bear the weight of you and your car. But it doesn't require great faith because that bridge has been proven to be trustworthy. Now, there may be uh, someone who has a, a, a great fear of heights and a phobia about bridges, and they pull out at five miles an hour, fearing greatly that the bridge, bridge is going to collapse. But that's all, it, all the faith it takes to get to the other side. Now, it's not going to be a pleasant trip for that person, and it may take a while at five miles an hour, but he's going to get there. On the other hand, you may have a daring person who comes to a rickety old wooden bridge and just stops, looks at it, revs up his ears, and he just drives right across. Well, you could say that he has great faith. I would question his common sense and wisdom in driving something across something that is that untrustworthy. Maybe he can boast in his great faith. But no one can boast in great faith when the object is proven to be trustworthy. Now think about this. What is the most trustworthy thing in the universe? The living God. He has a track record of never failing anyone who has trusted him throughout human history. He's, he's faultless. Well, he's faultless, period. But we can never say God has failed. So either we take him at his word or we don't. If we do trust him, get this, it's no credit to us. All it takes is a little grain of faith in Him because the issue is not our great faith, but our great God. So I argue that the concept of great faith actually exalts man and not God, whereas true faith exalts God and not man. Now, Jesus' point is that it's not a matter of how much faith you have, but rather, do you have any faith in the living God? If so... It can accomplish great things, not because of the size of your faith, but because of the power and the ability of the God you are placing your faith in. He'll do mighty things through the person who trusts, him, trusts in him, even if their faith is seemingly small and weak. Then who gets the glory? God does. Nine years ago, I was sitting on the tarmac at Charles de Gaulle um, Airport in Paris, outside of Paris, and I was waiting to take off to Atlanta. We were in a 747. It's, it's a big baby that seats 10 people wide across the thing. I'm not sure how many it holds. It's a bunch. And it was full. And uh, the pilot came on and he says, well, folks, uh, our takeoff is going to be delayed. We're having some electrical issues. And then he says, I promise you, we will not take off until... Everything is in proper working condition. Well, this was just too much for one young woman uh, on board with, with obvious anxiety. Uh, she told the stewardess near me that I could hear, she said she could not fly on this plane and that she had to be escorted off. And the stewardess says, well, maybe, how about you talk to the pilot? So she gets the lady up and a, and a guy gets up with her, husband, boyfriend, I don't know, but they, they walk up front. They never come back. Those two seats stay empty. She simply lacked the faith to stay on the plane. But guess what? The me mechanics found the problem. They fixed it. 
Two and a half hours later, after sitting there on that plane, we take off, and nine hours later, we arrive safely in Atlanta. Now, I'll be the first to grant that planes are made and maintained and even flown by fallible humans. So there's always a chance that it could crash. But generally, they have a much safer safety record than driving your car. Many people, many more people drive driving, driving their car than in airplane crashes. So they have this safe track record and they're worthy of our trust. If that anxious woman had just been able to have enough faith to stay on board, she would have safely reached her destination. She was flying to Atlanta as well. She could have reviewed in her mind the safety record of the major airlines. She could have considered the fact that, yeah, the, the, the pilot and all the stewardesses, they were committing their own lives to the safety of that plane. They stayed on, and they worked it and flew it to Atlanta. Just a small amount of faith, and she would have been able to later say, my doubts were unfounded. The pl that plane and the pilot, they were trustworthy. That's what the rest of us said. We stayed on board. We flew home. But her lack of faith really was saying, I don't trust the competency of these electricians or of this pilot. It detracted from the glory or the commendation that they deserved for doing a good job. Well, even so, a lack of faith on our part, what does it do? It detracts from God's glory. Whereas just a small amount of faith, enough to get on board, exalts God as the faithful and powerful God that He is. How much more trustworthy is the living God than a fallible airplane and human pilot? Even when Jerusalem had been sacked by the Babylonians and, and the temple was in ruins, Jeremiah could say in Lamentations chapter 3, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So he's thinking of something, and when he thinks of this, it gives him hope. What is it? Here's what he says. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. That's just a little bit of faith. To say, regardless of what's going on around me, I trust the Lord because he is trustworthy. Now, how does this apply to the matter at hand? That of trusting God when we're faced with these difficult commands of Scripture. Well, I want to use the example of verse 4. Uh, suppose that someone has wronged you and asked for your forgiveness, but you're deeply hurt and, and you're struggling with obeying God by granting forgiveness. Maybe that root of bitterness has entrenched itself in your heart as the root of this mulberry tree is in the ground. How much faith do you need to forgive the other person? Isn't the answer as much faith as it takes to believe that God has forgiven you? When you have that attitude, you can pray, Lord, I am really having difficulty obeying you by forgiving my brother. But I know that I have trusted you and that you have forgiven my sins. And, and I know that you did it, not because of my great faith, but because you are the faithful God who keeps his promises. I glorify you for your mercy towards me. I ask you now to be glorified through me by enabling me to forgive this person who has wronged me. Uproot this bitterness from my heart and plant it into the sea. 
by getting your eyes off of you and your faith and onto God and his great mercy and faithfulness, you glorify him. Now, even if your faith is as small as that little mustard seed, God can uproot that bitterness that's in your heart and bury it forever. And then who gets the glory? God does. Now, when Jesus, when he uses that analogy of commanding a mulberry tree to be uprooted and then be planted in the sea, he's not suggesting that we go around doing that literally. He's using that graphic illustration to say that even small faith can do what is humanly impossible because it is none other than the Almighty God who works through that small faith. Everyone who has truly believed in Christ for salvation has enough faith to obey the most difficult commands of Scripture. Because the issue isn't our great faith. The issue is our great God. Look to Him and He'll be glorified as He works His mighty power through your weakness, through your small faith. But Jesus goes on in verses 7 through 10 to tell a little parable, if you will, that shifts the focus from faith uh, to obedience and humility. So, you know, don't be so concerned about faith. Let's talk about here obedience and humility. When we encounter those difficult commands in Scripture, our focus should be more on obedience and the humility that comes with it. Now, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he put his finger on the issue he wrote, it's hard to believe, and he's talking about the Bible, it's hard to believe not because it's hard to understand, but because it's hard to obey. I have been in this Christian walk and been in leadership long enough to know that that is absolutely true. People abandon Scripture because of some of these commands that are so hard to obey. And they say, well, that can't be right. I'm just walking away. There's no way. No, I'm just walking away. They don't have any faith in God whatsoever. Jesus says you have enough faith. You simply need to obey. If we focus on increasing our faith, we're really going to get inflated notions about ourselves. Even if we focus on our obedience, boy, it is so easy to get puffed up with how noble we are to have been so obedient. So the Lord instructs us to view ourselves as God's slaves, who owe him obedience in all things and who are unworthy of any of his blessings. Jesus is using humor here to make a point. In that culture, slaves had a very simple job description. Do everything your master commands, period. That's it. Slaves didn't give orders, they took orders. They didn't negotiate with the owner what their privileges and perks would be. They didn't join slave unions to get better working conditions and wages. They were not free to say, I don't like that order, so I'm not going to do it. Slaves had to obey. So when they came in after a hard day of work, uh, they didn't expect their owners to have dinner ready for them. That wasn't even on their radar. They couldn't tell the owner, yeah, I've had a rough day. You need to get dinner yourself. That won't fly. They expected to come in and serve their master. And they didn't expect him to be profuse in thanksgiving for them doing what they were supposed to do. It was a duty to serve. It was their duty to serve him. Only after that could they have their own dinner. Now, duty is not the only picture. 
in Luke chapter 12, Jesus showed how he as the master would graciously reverse roles and wait upon the faithful servants. And the focus there was on his grace. You don't deserve this, but I'm actually going to serve you. But here, he's emphasizing our responsibility to do what he commands us to do. Our focus cannot be on our feelings, but rather we must focus on our duty. I can't picture that tired and dirty slave coming in off the field feeling like getting his master's dinner. No, he felt like taking a bath and being served a dinner himself. But he had to focus on his duty as a slave. Now, we live in a day that encourages us to focus on our feelings. We've been encouraged to rage against God when we feel angry because of how he's treated us. Now, I realize that the psalmist sometimes poured out his complaint before the Lord, and, and I'm not suggesting that we deny or suppress our feelings. They're there. They're important. But there is a right way and a wrong way to let the sovereign of the universe know how you feel. We need to remember at all times our lowly position before him. We are nothing but dust and ashes in his presence. He owes us nothing. We owe him everything. He doesn't owe us. He owns us. And he owns us as slaves. That's what Jesus says. And as such, we owe him obedience, even when his commands seem difficult. Now, there's no praise. There's no glory in doing your duty. Duty is that which is expected of a person. I would venture to say that when you go into work next week on time, that your boss doesn't say, well, thank you so much for being here on time. I'm just so impressed how you do that every day. It means so much to us. No, that's your job. That's your duty. You're supposed to be there on time. Well, neither is it, uh, neither do you crow or complain about paying your bills. You owe the money, so you pay the bill. The point is, we don't earn brownie points with God for doing what he's commanded us to do. It's expected for slaves to do what the master commands. But because of the human propensity towards pride, we're all prone to get puffed up. And when we simply do our duty, especially if we start thinking how difficult it was, we think, I'm so spiritual. I forgave my brother seven times yesterday. So Jesus goes on to show us that we should view ourselves as God's slaves who are actually unworthy of any of his blessings. He concludes this, verse 10, he says, So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, say to yourself, we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. That's humility. Spurgeon says that here the Lord is pouring ice cold water down our back. But it's therapeutic. We need that dousing to remember our place before Him. Now, sometimes we get puffed up about our years of sacrificial service or just our forgiving spirit that we, we almost think that God owes us something. We have no claim on God. All that we have, we have received by grace. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 4. He says, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? Folks, we have, we have no right to boast. But we do have one thing. I'll get to that in a minute. One thing that we can boast of. I'm preempting myself. The fact is, we were lost and on that fast lane to hell when God's mercy rescued us. He graciously gave us the privilege of serving Him. 
Are we then to congratulate ourselves, to pat ourselves on the back when we simply obey His commands? That's what pride would have us do. The Bible nowhere tells us that we're to grow in self-esteem. Self-esteem is, is kind of like patting yourself on the back. But many times it exhorts us to grow in humility. Even when we obey the most difficult commands in the Bible, we are to say of ourselves, I am just an unworthy slave who has only done that which I ought to have done. It was my duty. Now, if you struggle with pride, I told the 830 crowd, I, I, I got rid of pride years ago. I'm proud of that. Um, who doesn't struggle with pride? If you struggle with pride, I'd recommend this little book to you. I mean, you could read it in two hours. It's called Humility by Andrew Murray. Like I said, you can read it in a couple hours, but it's got a lifetime of application. It's just, just really good. I'd encourage you to get that and read it. You familiar with the Navigators? The Navigators are well known for their stress on having a servant attitude. A businessman once asked Lorne Sandy, this was the then current president of uh, Navigators, how he could know when he had a servant attitude. And Sandy said, you know that you've got a servant attitude by how you act when you are treated like one, when you're treated like a servant. What he's saying is, when someone treats you like a servant, do you get offended and say, well, I deserve better treatment than that? Or... Do you say, I just got treated better than I deserve? Because not only am I a servant, I'm an unworthy servant. Well, God's way of motivating us towards obedience and humility is to keep us focused on the cross of Christ. I just thought of this. I used it yesterday as part of my sermon. Do you remember uh, Philippians 2? Paul says that... Um, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. It's humility. Well, Galatians 2, 16 through 20 was Carlos's life passage. And the end of verse 20 says, The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. At the end of the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 14, here's what Paul says. May it never be that I should boast, except, oh, Paul is going to boast. This is the one thing we can boast in, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let me ask you this, is there any pride in crucifixion? No, there's just humility. Or as Isaac Watts puts it, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. If you're struggling with some difficult command that you know God wants you to obey, look to the cross where Jesus gave himself for you in humility. Rather than seeking more faith, let's focus on greater obedience and humility as his unworthy slaves. Let's pray. Father, these are humbling words and commands that are coming directly from the mouth of your son, Jesus. And 
Father, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of what it means to lay aside our pride and our desire to be stronger in the faith. Lord, what you really desire is obedience and humility in that be obedience. Understanding that when we follow your command, we're just doing what we should have done in the beginning. So God, do that work in our hearts that we may know you better. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, maybe you're sitting out there this morning and you're, a part, you're apart from Christ. Um, it is pride that keeps us away from God. The pride of saying, yeah, I want, uh, I want to be in control of my own life. After all, I'm not as bad as person A, B, and C. Surely God's not going to send me to hell. And they try to maintain that hold. Maybe you're doing that today. That hold on your life. You want to be in control. Let's face it, to degrees, we all want to be in control. But that is an attitude of pride. When you come to God, uh, Paul says that you, you have two things, repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. To repent simply means to turn away from your sin and you turn towards God. You turn away from yourself and you turn to God and you receive Jesus. Okay, You, you trust in what Jesus did on that cross. It's a finished work. All you have to do is believe that and trust it today and you can be saved. Don't keep fighting. If there's something in you boiling right now, it could be the Holy Spirit saying, you need to listen. I'm talking to you. You need to let go of everything you're trying to hold on to, on to and turn to me and let me, let me take over. That's the Holy Spirit. That's His prompting. I encourage you to be obedient in that. Don't run from it. Run to it. It'll change your life. Now, if you're a believer, uh, I'm pretty sure that this sermon has hit you at some point. You know that point. I don't. I, I told the first, first service that oftentimes, you know, a sermon, I mean, it will literally just knock one or two people out. And they, they come up afterwards and like, almost like, how did you know? I'm like, I didn't. That was the Holy Spirit. I had no idea. Well, this morning, and, and this one, what I'm saying is, this one is speaking to every one of you. If you're listening, <laughs> I promise you, it is speaking to you at some level about something specific. You need, don't run from it. Run to it. Be obedient. And then don't be proud because you were so obedient. Realize, this is what God requires of me. It's my duty. Do it. And in fact, I did have some come, somebody come up afterward and say, I was sitting there shaking my head the whole service and finally I just had to bow my head and say, God, forgive me. Because they were running from something that this sermon is addressing. And she says, now I've got, to, I've got to obey. We all have areas where we need to beef up our obedience. But again, understand that obedience is to be in humility as a, an unworthy slave. Don't ever think that your obedience, like I said, gives you brownie points with God. You're just doing what He has called you to do, what He's commanded you to do as an unworthy slave. So if God's dealing with you, get it right with Him, believers. Okay, Just do it. You'll be glad in the end, I promise you. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.